Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Okay, we're going to receive uh, the Lord's Supper this morning. I did not bring mine up here. I had it in my briefcase. Someone want to grab it? Thank you, John. See, stepping up. Look at that. Thank you, John. Uh, We're going to receive communion this morning. We have been on two different series, and this morning, I want to try to merge those together. Uh, The two series we've been on is we've been talking about uh, understanding evil. You think, wow, that is a bummer of a series. No, because we want to be able to combat evil. And so if you go back, I'm not going to get into all of it. You can go back in the podcast. We've been talking about the three entrances to evil in human history. There was the fall there was Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11. And Genesis literally means beginnings. And there were three entrances of evil in that. And each one of those were three different episodes with three different entities. Uh, uh, there's, there's three different effects, three different scenarios. And if you treat them all the same, or if your only grid work for evil is the fall in Genesis 3, you are at a great disadvantage. Because you're going to be owning as an inward battle something that is external to you. And you will be very susceptible to condemnation because every thought that comes through your mind, you're going to own as yours. Because the only grid work you have for evil is that you have fallen into sin. And so therefore, you don't have a grid work for external evil. There There is the fall of man, our our fallen nature that needs to be redeemed. When you get saved, you have a new nature, but we also need to be discipled because even though your spirit is saved, your soul is being saved. And your body gets temporary salvation. God puts his patches on a dying vessel. That means you get healed as you're growing old. I was telling someone the other day, words of knowledge become a much bigger challenge to me because it used to be I'd feel something in my body and okay, that's the Lord showing me someone needs healed. Now it's like I feel something in my body all the time and is that me or is that Jesus? <laughs> Sometimes I just want revenge for what I'm suffering so I'll release that, you know, see people healed. If I can't get it, at least they can. But we, we're, we're saved, we're being saved and sometimes we can break into some salvation here with healing. It's not, it's not that dismal, okay? We'll get off that. But so there's, you know, so what we need to do is we need to be discipled, the renewing of our mind, dealing with the unresolved issues of our life and all those things, inner healing. So that's how we deal with the first entrance. The second entrance is this, this, the, uh, the spurring of the demonic external evil that entices us to sin. And you don't counsel a demon and you don't cast out bad character. See how you got to deal with two different things, two different ways? So we need to learn to deal with external evil. And there are times where there are open doors that need to be closed. We're going to see that this morning. It's even embedded in communion and in the Lord's Supper and in the Passover that we have to mark the doors so that those spirits don't come in and cause destruction in our life. So that's where deliverance comes in. But then we have this other element of evil called principalities and powers. And you see in the Gospels, Jesus casting out these entry-level demons, these low-level, you know, these, these 
demons that grovel at his feet, but you never see Jesus addressing principalities and powers. And there is a distinction between these two. So what are these? And how do we deal with those? And I'm here to tell you this morning, one of the ways in which we deal with these principalities and powers is through the blood of the Lamb in communion. Communion is actually a weapon where we rub the principalities and powers' faces in the victory that Jesus won. And we proclaim that victory as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Let me read you a couple of scriptures here. If you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. This is a fascinating verse. I believe the first time I ever saw this verse was when my wife was in labor with our firstborn. She was, she was in, in bed in labor, and I was sitting next to her getting revelation from God. I know, that just sounds cold-hearted. My wife was a trooper, man. This, this lady had, gave birth to seven children, and I will never forget, she was in the middle of giving birth, and she was so kind. Oh, she would give her a washcloth, thank you. And then she'd go back, and I heard ladies in the other room screaming and cussing doctors out, and I realized what a treasure I have. Uh, because here I could just get revelation while she's giving birth to our first child. But I read this verse, and it so intrigued me. Now, that was 32 years ago. Listen to what it says. <laughs> yeah, I know i got to dig myself out of this hole. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, of course, speaking of Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now what snagged my heart as I read through that was that he was telling us, Paul was telling us, that through Jesus, God was reconciling all things to himself, whether things on earth, but also things in the heavens. The Greek word is oranios, and it is plural. He's reconciling things in the heavens. He's aligning all things with the power of his will through the blood. So what Jesus did on the cross, and, and I don't want to minimize what he did for us as humanoids. That's a wonderful thing. That's an amazing thing that we were reconciled to the Father through his blood, but his redemption wasn't merely limited to that. It wasn't merely that he reconciled us to himself. He was actually reconciling the cosmos, the things in the heavens and the things on earth through his blood. So we need to understand, you know, we talked a number of weeks ago, sometime in the last six months, it was probably four months ago, uh, during communion, that's when we started this series on communion, we were talking about the power of the blood. And if we don't understand how the blood, there's three applications at least to the blood of Jesus. There's the blood used Godward that we offer it to the Father. The blood satisfies the demands of heaven. And once we understand that, then we can move into the second application of the blood. The blood cleanses the heart of the believer, of a guilty conscience. But if you don't understand how it satisfies the Father, you won't be able to understand how it cleanses your conscience. And so you've got to go back and get a firm understanding of this foundational use of the blood and its use towards God. 
You can go back, it, you just look in, in the podcast, you can find that. I, I don't remember what it was named, but you, you can find it. If you can't find it, email the church, we'll figure it out. So it's the, the, the blood of Jesus satisfies the righteous demands of the Father, but it also cleanses our conscience. Or you could put it this way, it deals with the twofold manifestation of guilt. Legal guilt by satisfying our debt before God and psychological guilt by cleansing our heart of a guilty conscience. The divine and the human side to guilt. There's a lot of people who understand legally they are righteous before God, but psychologically they don't walk that way. They still feel defiled. And they end up, they understand heaven will be my destination, but I will live outside the holy of holies until I arrive because I'm not worthy. And you're being ripped off of your blood-bought right to enter in by the blood of the lamb and, and dwell in the secret place. And so we have these, these two applications. Then the other application of the blood is towards Satan. And when Revelation, it says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life unto the death. If you look at the context, all three of those are weapons used Satanward. It's talking about the use of the blood towards the enemy. How do we use the blood towards the enemy? Well, if you don't understand how it satisfies God and cleanses your conscience, you'll never be able to use it towards the enemy. Because the enemy's primary tool is accusation and condemnation. If he can't keep you from God, he'll try to keep you from God's presence and, and practicing your right to, to walk and abide with him. He'll keep you at a low-impact Christianity by keeping you disconnected and on the outside. You will not learn to abide in him and live from that place, which is the place of power and intimacy, because you don't feel worthy. And you disarm him of his accusation by understanding the blood is my approach to God. I've satis it satisfies God. It cleanses my conscience because now I understand God is satisfied through the blood and therefore it strips the enemy of all of his, his condemnation. We, we, he can't argue with us because our argument is no longer when he begins to tell you, you're not good enough, you didn't do enough. You just agree with the enemy. Yeah, you know, you're, you're exactly right. Thanks for reminding me what the Bible says. In me there is nothing good. The problem is I'm not in me anymore, devil. I'm in him where I am made righteous. I live from that place. And I'm telling you, once we believe that, we can come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. I was telling someone this week, one of my spiritual mamas, Sandra Collier, many of you remember Sandra. She's now with the Lord. I, I wonder if she's listening in this morning. She, uh, she, was, a, she was a powerful woman of God. And she told me one time, she, she'd always call me Dave Olson. She would say my whole name, Dave Olson. She said, I don't get prayed up. She said, I abide. I'm thinking, wow. Man, I, I've, been, I've been meditating on that one for about 30 years. It's not that we, you know, we're running a little low. Let's go fill up, you know, get filled back up. And then we go out and disconnect from him and... Kind of try to live low. I'm getting a little low on the present. We kind of roll into the gas station. You know, 
It's we abide in him. We're, we're to live from him. But the only way you can do that is when you understand your righteousness is not in yourself. It's in Christ. And you really believe that. That you live from that place. And it's in the blood. Because the life is in the blood and the life that's in Jesus' blood was a life that fulfilled every righteous requirement that God had for man. God solved his own problem. He had a dream. I'm going to make a man in my own image. He said it in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve aborted the process through their disobedience, God, God's word will not return void. God said, I'm going to stubbornly pursue that one. I guess I'm just going to have to fulfill it my life, myself. And Jesus put on an earth suit and came in and fulfilled as a man his right, own righteous requirements. And he offered his own righteous blood to himself and settled the deal. And we enter in on that sacrifice. But what we need to realize is it's not just the salvation of man that was taking place on the cross. He was reconciling to himself all things, whether the things in heaven or the things on earth. He's aligning all things with the purpose of his will. One surrendered life at a time. That is how he's doing this thing. Now, when he says he's reconciling all things, whether things in the heaven or things on the earth, uh, the reconciliation, there's a reconciling even of the invisible powers, those powers in the heavenly realms. It, 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 it refers to their subordination rather than their salvation. We're not saying that the principalities and powers will be saved, but they are being made subject to him. Let me share another verse with you. Look at Colossians 1 or rather 2, verse 15. This is speaking of Jesus again. He disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumph over them, triumphing over them in him. So God disarmed the rulers and authority. What it means is he stripped them of their power. This explains why Jesus didn't uh, address these principalities and powers. Now, I've wrestled with that concept for 35, 40 years now. I've been asking the Lord, Lord, where did they obtain their authority that you then stripped them of, and how do they still operate in their role now? And those are questions we need to understand if we're to operate in the authority that God has given to us. And where they derived their authority, it was a gift from God. Colossians also, chapter 1 also says that God made all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, thrones and powers. So God established the structure of the universe. These thrones are part of his intended design. And God set these rogue rulers in place who then rebelled. We talked about it a few weeks ago. You can see it in Psalm 82. God addresses them and he says, how long will you rule unjustly? He addresses them as sons of God. He addresses them as God's little g. They were divine beings created, but they were, they were a level of being known as Elohim and they are referred to as Elohim. The verse starts in the Hebrew, it says, Elohim took his place among in the council of Elohim. It was singular and plural. He took his seat. Among. Now, I was taught that Elohim was a title 
precisely for God himself, but that's not the case. In the Hebrew, throughout the Old Testament, that word is used for different beings. It's a class of being. So when Psalm chapter 8 says, God made man a little lower than the Elohim, a lot of people have scratched their head on that and thought, well, how could we be, we're a little lower than God, but in the New Testament, it's translated a little lower than the angels. It's because the New Testament translation isn't as precise as the Old Testament. It's not wrong because you could put these Elohim, these beings, in the class of fallen angels. But we see in chapter 11 of Genesis that God disinherits the nations. It says in Deuteronomy 32, it says, in Moses' last song, it says that God divided the nations among the number of the sons of God, but Israel he kept for himself. He's referring to Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 6, we see the entrance of angels consummating a relationship with women Human women, and that, that's where they spawned the demonic. And so the flood came, God wiped that out. If you look in the Hebrew, when it says that Noah was righteous among men, the Hebrew can be translated, his lineage was pure. God was attempting to keep that pure lineage because he had already declared that the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. So the enemy's strategy was to defile the seed of the woman so there would be no purebred humans left. And so when the flood came, these, dis, these, these beings that were the, the hybrid beings, now a lot of people read in Romans or Genesis 6 and they, they try to do mental gymnastics and contort that passage because it's so uncomfortable to read and think these angelic creatures had intimate relations with human women, and they spawned children, which were hybrid children. And then it says, who were giants of old, heroes of old? How can this be? So they try to reduce it from what it was really saying. But the early church fathers clearly believed. They had the oral history, and they clearly believed that these were these Elohim, these spirits that came into the daughters of men and spawned these these, these heroes of old that were abnormally large human beings, these were what David was confronting. And so after God wipes them out in the flood, Nimrod comes along in Genesis chapter 11. I just love that this world ruler, one of the first tyrants of history, his name has now become an insult. Uh, you know, the old, you ever heard the saying that we call our sons Paul, but our dogs Nero? You know, kind of as a, a slight to the Roman government, how it treated Paul and Christianity, but Paul really came out on top. Well, we also call people a Nimrod if they're being a bonehead. Well, Nimrod was this world ruler, and he tried to build a tower. Now, this wasn't, they weren't so stupid as to think, we're going to build a ladder so tall that we'll walk right into heaven. They were building a ziggurat. A ziggurat is, a, is one of those ancient structures. It was an occult structure in which they would conjure the supernatural. Because the, these spirits that came into the daughters of men, the oral history of Jewish history was that these, these beings came down on Mount Hermon and they conspired to come into the daughters of men and they were trying to conjure those spirits. 
And so God judged them, and he, he told them to spread across the earth, and read, rather than obeying them and spreading across the earth, they gathered around Nimrod's leadership, so God came and he, he divided their language, he divided them, and, it's, and so when Moses looks back on this time, it says God divided the nations according to the number of the sons of God. So when Psalm 82 says God took his seat in the divine council among the gods, and he said to them, you are all sons of gods, but you will die like men, you are princes. These are all terms that are then co-opted in the New Testament under the phrase principality and a power. They are beings that have been given geographic power or authority over a region. And we know from Psalm 82, because he says, how long will you rule unjustly? Guard the vulnerable. Give justice to the poor. And so we know it was an administrative role, a governing role. We know furthermore from what Jesus encountered when he was tempted by Satan himself, when the enemy said, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Jesus didn't argue with them and say, you have, you have no right to do that. He didn't try to correct the enemy and argue, wait a minute, who do you think you are giving that away? He understood there was delegated authority that must be stripped at Calvary. Jesus had authority in his flesh to drive out demons out of people's lives. But he was awaiting the cross to strip these principalities and power of their originally delegated authority because they had gone rogue. And so in the cross, he stripped them of their right and seized back that authority. Now, Genesis 11, it says, he divided the nations among the, according to the number of the sons of God. The ESV is a very good translation, and it translates that. That's, you'll see that show up in the, uh, uh, the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament that was uh, ordered by Alexander the Great. Uh, it's according to the sons of God. Some translations will say according to the sons of Israel, which doesn't make sense because Israel was not in existence in Genesis 11. Because if you see in Genesis 11, what God does is he disperses the nation by uh, language. And Paul is referring to that when Paul says in, in Je uh, Acts, I want to uh, say, 17, he says, God hath chosen the times and places in which men should live. God delegated territory to human beings, divided them linguistically, and put over them these rogue rulers. But it says, but Israel, they weren't rogue yet, but he says, but Israel, I will keep for myself. What does he do in chapter 12? He introduces Israel in seed form. And he introduces a man called Abram, who would become Abraham, who would give birth to a son Isaac, who would have two boys, and who would, one of which would have 12 sons that became a family, that became tribes, that became a nation. So you see this theme throughout scripture. Now, and this, this has everything to do with missions, by the way, okay? Psalm 82. The, I, I wish I could take questions, because some of you are looking at me like, Pastor, I don't know about this. I'm telling you, this is thoroughly scriptural. 
Psalm 82, the last verse, you know what it says? It's, he's, God is, let, let's turn there, let's turn there real quick here. I want to I read this to you. This is powerful. Because we need to understand when we are dealing with principalities and powers, what we're really dealing with. Man, I am so sorry. Okay. I, I'm going to start bringing a printed Bible up here. I am so sorry. Psalm 82. Okay. Let's, let's just read through this real quick. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly? This is God speaking to these beings to whom he has delegated authority and show partiality to the wicked, Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So we see this, that it was an administrative role, but we see at least a portion of these beings have gone rogue and what they do is they delegate they favor the wicked those who will worship them as and and they they've they've pulled worship away from god absorbed pulled it for themselves and those wicked people who will give it they will they will release governmental authority to them ever seen that happen in human history where wicked powers rise fueled by the demonic in those cases, we're dealing with principalities and powers. And we need to know how to unseat those principalities and powers, strip them of their power. And one of the ways, it's not the only way, there's intercession and activism. And one of the ways of activism is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go on, we go into those nations under the blood and we declare that these principalities and powers have now been stripped of their authority and we remind them through the taking of communion. We remind them that the, the Son of God, the, o, the, only, the word that we translate only begotten Son, because this, this would be a question I have. If we see sons of God here, how can he have the only begotten if we have others? Are they not begotten? No, the Greek word is monogenes. It means the only unique son. He's a son, genes, genetic, but he's mono. He's monogenes. He's the only unique son. He's the only uncreated son. And so what God did is he delegated the, 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 the administrative role to these sons. They went rogue. He said, here's my answer. I'm going to raise up another son. And by the way, you, you other, these demonics, the, these demonic spirits that came into the daughters of men and created a new race, I'm going to create a new race. I'm going to, my spirit will hover over a virgin and she will give birth to the only begotten son and he will be the answer. And that's why when Jesus would walk up to the demons, often they would scream out with this unique phrase, we know who you are. You are the son of the most high God. Why? Because they, were, they understood that they were sons of these lesser gods. But they understood, oh my goodness, here's the one who outranks us all. And they would squeal. And Jesus would often silence them. They would squeal and he put them into the squealers. Go into the pigs. I mean, 
Being demonized is so bad that even pigs committed suicide. It's bad. And so we see this, this scenario. I forgot where I was going. Look, 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 let's look at Psalm 82 real quick here. Uh, we're going to take communion. Okay, look at this. Uh, they have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. He's talking about human beings left to themselves. And then again, God's rebuking them. I said, you are gods. I, I believe this possibly may be Asaph. Asaph was a prophetic worshiper. And he, through encounter, he was known as one of David's seers. He was a prophet, a prophetic worshiper, who functioned under King David as a seer. And David, or Asaph, was taken up into a prophetic encounter and saw this all happening. He got a download from God to understand what's going on here. And by the way, that should make you and I hungry. Because that's not just Asaph's stuff. If Asaph could get that over the old covenant, how much more is that accessible to you and I in the new covenant? We need to be hungry for these kind of things and say, God, give us wisdom and revelation so that we understand what's going on. Open your word to us so that we understand what your word really means. Deliver us from a shallow cursory overview. Open up the mysteries of your word so that we can cooperate with you and we can be the true church, the ecclesia of God that governs with you. God instituted the ecclesia. It's the called out ones. That's what church really means. Doesn't mean we, people who gather on Sunday morning wear their Sunday best. What it means is people called out, they, they, they come together. There had to be at least two or three. This was a Roman law. Two or three Romans would equal an ecclesia and could begin to do Roman business together. You remember when there was the riot in Philippi over, uh, riot in Ephesus, rather over Artemis, the, the idols to Artemis, and it, they went into the, the big meeting place and had this riot. You know what that riot was called? An ecclesia. You and I are called to be an ecclesia, and we legislate God's purposes through intercession and activity so that his kingdom will show up on earth. That's, the, that's what we're called to do. They have, okay, so I believe this might just be Asaph saying, I said you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die, fall like any prince. He's declaring the judgment of God. He was forecasting what would happen at Calvary. He's saying, God, you're, you're, it's on the clock, buddy. God's gonna strip you of your power. And so he did at Calvary. Now you and I have entered into a new era where these rogue rulers, it, it, this is, it's like us cleaning out the bunkers, okay? The war has been won. It's been declared, King Jesus is Lord. But there's still some stubborn spirits that are fighting in the bunkers and we gotta go clean them out. So we go into nations because listen to this last verse, verse eight. This is a missions statement. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Well, wait a minute. God delegated the nations in Genesis 11. In 83, he says, 
I'm going to strip those who I gave the authority to, and I'm going to re-inherit the nations. And in the New Testament, King Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Now therefore go into all nations of the earth, making disciples, preaching the gospel. He will inherit the, re-inherit the nations. And so we have authority to go into the darkest places of the world and declare the kingdom of our God has arrived. And I said this a few weeks ago, but this is so crucial for us to understand. King Jesus is a king. And like any king, he doesn't go around doing every little thing. He doesn't, he doesn't execute every little detail of his kingdom. He has subordinates, layers of delegates, to which he delegates authority and responsibility, assignments, and he said, go get that done. Hey, I heard way back, you know, uh, three uh, subordinate kingdoms from here, they've rebelled and said they're no longer going to serve us. I need you to go and take care of that. And that general, that, that uh, vassal king would go and he would, take, he would make subject that other kingdom. He would make war to uproot that rogue ruler and displace him. And so that the kingdom of the, the, the king would be manifest in that sub, subordinate kingdom. Does that make sense? And so that is the grid work for scripture. And if we have this watered down, uh, shallow understanding of scripture, we think that God still operates by, uh, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 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 that God just says it and it happens. And that's not the case. God says it releasing the authority and then there's a process of that happening through his servants, both angelic and human in partnership to see God's kingdom land. That's why the prophetic is so important. The very reason we need to understand what God is doing is because there is a battle between the declaration and the realization. There is a battle that if we don't have a word on the declaration, if we don't understand it from scripture or from prophetic word, then we fail to realize what God is doing. And we don't partner with God, we don't fight, we, we give up and we just settle that, well, I guess down here we lose, and I guess you know until Jesus comes, we're just gonna suffer and we're gonna be defeated. We buy into a theology, everything that happens is God's will, and God's will always happens. And my job is, to simply submit to all of it and let it build character in me. We show up in heaven with a lot of character but a lot of bruises and God's kingdom has not manifest through those people like he desired. So we need to understand God delegates to us authority and he wants to take back the nations of the world. And he does it through the preaching of the gospel and through intercession, displacing those principalities and powers. And God willing, we'll get into that another week. I'm going to ask you to grab your communion elements. I had intended to deal with some other things this morning. And my own, it's my own fault. We got into some other things. Turn with me to, uh, yeah, if you, need, if you need communion elements, raise your hand. And the ushers will get them to you. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you came together, it is not for better, 
but for the worse. For in the first place, you have come together as a church, but I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, he's, he's saying that your behavior itself enables everybody to recognize who's the real deal and who's not. That's what it's saying. That you, the, 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 the fruit of your life will cause other people to recognize they're the real deal and them not so much. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord. That, that just really strikes me. Paul wasn't there, but he said, I received it from the Lord. God thought this so central to the Christian faith that God downloaded what really happened to Paul directly. Paul had a prophetic revelation, however that looked. What I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, listen to this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death. Communion is an act of proclamation. We need to understand this. We are actually preaching the gospel when we partake of this. But who are we preaching it to? We are reminding Jesus, reminding God. Not that God forgets, but it's like that. It's like two, a husband and wife, 50 years later, pulling out the wedding album and saying, look, remember that day when we vowed ourselves to each other? We laugh and laugh at the crazy outfits we were wearing because they're no longer in style, our hairdos, our glasses. But that it's that affection, it reminds of our affection. It's, it's not that either one of us forgot, but it's like that, that mutual, that, there's, there's that element to this. There's an element of us reminding ourselves. It's those three applications of the blood again. Reminding ourselves what he did. But there is a proclamation in this that we're reminding the principalities and powers that Jesus has stripped them of their authority. That they don't govern us anymore. They don't have authority over Ankeny, Iowa. They don't exercise authority over this region. That's why God raises up sent ones. He sends us with authority into the region. And we release the authority of heaven into that region. And we begin, begin to take a stubborn stand for righteousness. We labor in intercession to unseat those things. That's why Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our problem is not who's in the White House. It's not who's across the street. Our problem is those principalities and powers. Paul does say we do wrestle, but we wrestle with principalities and powers. These rogue rulers who are stubbornly trying to hold on to that original delegated position. But God sends his anointed servants in to 
displace them. We'll talk about, about that. How did, what does that look like in later days? Now, real quick. Oh, my. Um, turn with me to Exodus. I want to say it's Exodus... Exodus 12. I want to read one verse. Exodus 12. This is the Passover, and this is the backdrop for this, what Jesus is doing. He's partaking of the Passover. Okay? One of the things he said, and I want us to go after this. He says, look at verse 7. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their houses which eat. They shall eat the flesh that night. They paint the doorpost, the openings, the entry points to their household. When we take it this morning, we're claiming the entry points to our household is closed to the enemy that those curses, that the trafficking of the enemy, those dysfunctional patterns we've made room for generationally in our home, it stops now. We stand at the door of our families and we paint the doorposts with blood. We're sending a message. Why can we do that? Because of this one other verse, if I can find it. Listen to this one, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The Passover was a judgment, not only, only on the, the, uh, the rebellious Egyptian people, but on Pharaoh as the puppet ruler. He was known as the son of Ra. He was the human expression of this demonic principality, Ra, that ruled Egypt. And God said, I'm going to strip him and I'm going to humiliate Ra before the nations. And I will plunder this entire kingdom without ever lifting a sword. A bunch of slaves will simply say, hey, while you're releasing us for free, we would like some silver and gold. And people would say, absolutely, just leave. And they walked out and plundered the most powerful kingdom on earth without ever lifting a sword because God entered the battle. That's what this is about. And here's, here's, here's what I want to say. Go ahead and stand. Here's what I want to say. We'll, we'll land it with this. Calvary inaugurated a global Passover wherein the gods of this world were openly shamed stripped of their authority and set on notice of a global exodus from the kingship of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That's the pattern of heaven, the operating system. The Jewish Passover was simply a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who would take away not only the sins of Israel, but the sins of the world. Every time we celebrate communion, we're declaring King Jesus' victory over the principalities and powers. We need to understand this element of communion. So at that, I want you to peel back your top layer. A little practical instruction. Don't try to peel them both first because it'll be really hard to get the bread out after that. Peel the first layer off. 
Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lift your bread up before the Lord. We're going to go into a victory song in just a moment. Jesus, we thank you for the life you lived. We thank you that you began our redemption by becoming one of us, a human baby. Now, Lord, we thank you that you lived a sinless life and offered yourself as our sacrifice, stripping the principalities and powers of their authority over the earth. And Lord, I thank you especially that on the way to securing our eternal salvation by your blood, you took a detour and went to the whipping post so that you could also purchase peace of mind and physical healing at the whipping post. Thank you, Jesus. Let's break the bread and let's receive it. Hallelujah. Hold up the cup. Jesus, we proclaim your victory. We proclaim it to one another. Lord, we remind you, Lord, as your bride of what you did for us, we thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you that you sent your son. Jesus, we thank you that you freely came. Spirit, we thank you that you reveal the reality of the kingdom to us. And we declare it to the principalities and powers. King Jesus, the son of the most high God, has stripped you of all authority. And we live under the blood. We paint it over the doorpost of our family lines this morning. We paint it over our family line. That disease is diffused. It stops its spread at the threshold of our generation. In Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you that the prodigals are coming home. We thank you that the prodigals are coming home. Even now we say, come forth come forth Lazarus come forth we thank you Lord hallelujah thanks for listening to our podcast if you'd like to help more people hear this message you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media if you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give